This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We have seen the issues surrounding small-town American manufacturing cities that were the backbone of the U.S. economy for decades and how they have turned into something much different as companies leave those towns for other locations for a better deal. We also are uh, starting to see some of those cities make slight comebacks in transforming with maybe new business. Washington Post's Amy Goldstein went in-depth into one of those towns, Janesville, Wisconsin, which is the home of Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. They lost a General Motors plant, dealt with the recession, and then have been trying to make that comeback happen. The book that she wrote is titled Janesville, An American Story, and it's great to have Amy joining us here on the show right now. Amy, welcome. Good to be with you. Thank you. So tell us about your experience uh, there in Janesville, because from what I understand, you spent quite a bit of time really uh, you know, trying to get a feeling for what this town had been through and what they're trying to do now. Well, I was interested in finding a community in which I could take a close-up on what really happens when good jobs go away. And Janesville very much fit the bill. Um, it's an old, old industrial uh, small city in southern Wisconsin. Uh, the General Motors plant there started making tractors in 1919 and then started making Chevys in 1923. So by the time the plant closed, uh, most of the manufacturing there stopped two days before Christmas of 2008. You can just imagine how many generations of people in Janesville, Wisconsin, had thought of this General Motors plant as providing the best working class work in town. So the move to close the plant by General Motors was based on what? It was based on the financial uh, ill health of the company. Um, This was right in the midst of the Great Recession. Uh, This was December of 2008, and the recession had begun about a year earlier and would officially go through partway through 2009. And uh, at the time that the plant closing was announced, which was several months earlier, it was just exactly a year before General Motors itself would file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Amy Goldstein joining us. She is the author of the book Janesville, an American Story. We're talking about the uh, uh, the the downfall and the attempt to recover by Janesville right now. Uh, you mentioned, uh, and I mentioned at the top, that it is the home of Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. Uh, what was his role in terms of this period of time with Janesville? Obviously, he was probably uh, you know trying to do whatever he could uh, to try and uh, you know take care of his hometown. Well, when the plant closing was announced, there was a very strenuous bipartisan effort by both people in the community, leaders in the community and in the state of Wisconsin, to persuade General Motors to give the Janesville Assembly Plant, that was its name, another product to make. It had been making full-size SUVs, which weren't very popular at a time when gas prices, if you remember, had shot through the roof. Yeah. So Congressman Ryan, who was a congressman but not yet a committee chairman, not yet um, a candidate for vice president, and certainly not yet the Speaker of the House of Representatives, which he's been for the last couple of years now, he was part of that effort. Um, He, um, of all the politicians in town, probably knew best the leadership of General Motors, which uh, had thought it was in their interest to form a relationship with him when they wanted things from Congress. Where, where did, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the story that I uh, tell in this book begins with Paul Ryan uh, being home in his kitchen um, over a break from uh, Congress 
uh, and getting a call on his cell phone from the then CEO of General Motors, giving him a heads up that the plant closing announcement was to be made public the next morning. Uh, so he was aware of this right from the beginning. There was one point when uh, leaders um, from the state and Congress and the community uh, went to Detroit to plead with the leadership of General Motors to try to keep the plant open or give it yeah. something else to manufacture. And uh, Paul Ryan was part of that trip. I guess it was really nice of General Motors to give him, what, all of about 12 hours notice or whatever that time frame was that this closing was going to be announced, right? Well, you know, it was a funny thing because there had been rumors for years that this plant was vulnerable to being closed because right. it was so old. And it kept not happening and not happening. And finally, the day that it was announced, uh, it was one of four plants that General Motors announced was going to be closed. And uh, none of them got a lot of notice beforehand. Uh, so a lot of people obviously lost their jobs in that. And, and as that played out and the people were you know, trying to take stock of, of what they could do and, and where their next job and where their next meal was coming from, what was the impact on the town itself? I think we talk a lot about you know, the state level and obviously what the state was trying to do. But when you look at the, the, the core impact at the, at the city level, what was it like? Well, the impact was profound in, just in terms of who lost their jobs. Uh, in the last two shifts that went down, there were about 3,000 General Motors workers who lost their jobs. Uh, because the plant had existed, there were also um, a lot of supplier companies providing goods and services to General Motors in town. And all those people lost their jobs, too. So that's another few thousand uh, workers who suddenly were unemployed. Yeah. And on top of that, I mean, it's just this cascading effect. Um, there were small business in town that had been going for years and then suddenly could not because there weren't enough people to do, uh, with enough disposable income to go shopping. So there are all kinds of people who lost work. Um, among the auto workers themselves, one of the things that struck me was that for quite a while there was what I think could only be called denial uh, that these jobs were going to stay gone. Uh, this plant had been, you know, around for so long, and there have been times over its long history when products had left, and then a little bit later, products would come back, and the plant would keep going. And I think a lot of people in Janesville, you know, very legitimately could not imagine. They had no basis for imagining that this time would be different, but it was. And it was such a long period of time that that plant was kind of dormant. I saw an article yesterday that said, I guess they had just reached a deal uh, to actually do something with the with the property, correct? That's correct. So for a number of years, uh, this plant was the only one in the General Motors firmament, I mean, anywhere in the company, that was in the category called standby, which meant that it was dormant. Right. But it could be opened again if market conditions warranted it. Uh, that went on for several years. And then a couple of years ago, in the most recent contract between General Motors and the United Auto Workers, the standby status was converted so that the plant was then fully closed, permanently closed. And that meant that it was eligible to be sold. And uh, the city leadership of Janesville had wanted that mm -hmm. because they wanted to try to find somebody else to buy it. And as you said, um, after a few years of trying to find a buyer, 
uh, that property has just been sold in the last couple of weeks. It's been sold to a company called CDC out of St. Louis, which specializes in buying distressed industrial property and redevelopment, redeveloping them. So this company's uh, head has been in Janesville, had a press conference a couple of weeks ago, and said that in all likelihood, the plant is finally going to be demolished uh, in the next few months, and then there'll be some uh, uh, environmental cleanup and other things done to try to make it ready to uh, find new uses for that property. It's unclear what those uses might be at this point, but that's a big, big deal for Janesville after a lot of time of having this plant be the uh, center of its economy. I'm guessing that probably in the course of the last uh, many years, that because of the fact that you, you've had this plant that has basically sat dormant, uh, that the, uh, the population of Janesville has gone down because people just you know, are, are, are fed up and they need to go find work in, in some other location. Well, surprisingly, the population of Janesville has not gone down in the last several years. Um, I think that for a couple of reasons. One, people are very attached to this community, and that's not to say that nobody has left uh, to find work elsewhere. Right. But this is a community in which a lot of people have deep family roots locally, um, and they don't want to leave. Uh, so I know, you know people who have moved elsewhere, but I know more people who have taken jobs that pay less or there's a category of former GM workers in Janesville who have become GM workers elsewhere. Not that they have moved their whole families, but they're commuting long, long distances. One of the people I follow in the story uh, took a job after a couple of years in Indiana, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Mm-hmm and leaves every Monday morning and comes home late, late Friday nights and has been doing this for years now and has another several years to go until he's eligible to retire. And that's because neither he nor his family want to move to Indiana. 844-WHARTON is the number if you would like to join in. 844-942-7866. We're talking with uh, Amy Goldstein of the Washington Post, talking about her book, Janesville, an American Story. Your comments are welcome. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. And this is, as you mentioned, you focus here on Janesville, but this is a story that to a degree has played out in a variety of locations uh, around the United States. Uh, in in the time of the last several years, how was Janesville getting by? I mean, I mean, obviously you're talking about a loss of the tax base there, even though uh, you know the support of the company, even though you still have the people, you're receiving the you know some tax uh, relief from that perspective. But on the on the city and on the county, it, it probably was a, a a much greater economic burden than they had expected. Well, let me say two things. On your point about this having happened in many communities, that was my central idea in setting out to write this book, that I wanted to tell a story that would be a microcosm of what was happening in many places in the country and with many kinds of work, uh, because that's what's been happening out of the Great Recession and some of the years afterwards until recently when uh, job numbers and, uh, I mean, the unemployment level has fallen, but uh, income levels have stayed uh, quite de- uh, depressed uh, since before the Great Recession until recently when middle class wages have started to creep up a little bit. So this really is a microcosm or a metaphor. Um, so I'm hoping that many people who read this story will be able to identify with it from their own perspectives. As for what's happened in Janesville, you know, this is a 
town that's the antithesis of a place that's just kind of given up. Um, I didn't know this when I decided to focus on this community for this work. I did, but it turns out that Janesville is quite a resilient community, and there have been very strong economic development efforts to try to bring new employment to town. Uh, there have been a lot of efforts by grassroots uh, social service providers to try to help people uh, through these hard times when their work has gone away or their wages have gone way down when they found new work. Mm-hmm. But even with that, this is very hard. I mean, it hurts people's uh, sense of themselves. It yeah. hurts people's standard of living. Um, this is not an easy thing to recover from, no matter how resilient you or your community is. Well, and in some small towns where we've seen this, and at Ohio it's been uh, noted quite often, uh, about when you see some of these types of companies, and not necessarily auto automakers, but just you know manufacturing in general, that you, you obviously see that downturn, and you also see the increase uh, of drug use uh, and the opioid crisis in, in this country. It doesn't sound like that was a significant concern in Janesville, and maybe in part because of, uh, of the people that were there. Well, I think that um, opioids have not ravaged Janesville and the surrounding communities as much as they have in other places in the country. But that's not to say that they're entirely absent. Okay. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I did as part of the research for this book is get to know people in the community who work with people who have various kinds of of, uh, problems in their lives, uh, people with addictions, uh, people with mental health issues. Uh, people with, uh, you know, alcohol as well as drug abuse. And all those things, uh, and I should say suicides among them, uh, escalated a little bit after all these jobs went away. So, you know, it's not that this has become a completely drugged-out community by a long shot. Yeah. Um, but these things are present. What was the impact on the education sector in and around there, whether it be uh, the local high schools, uh, whether it be uh, community colleges in that in that part of the country? Well, Janesville has always had a well-reputed uh, public school system. And I got to know a number of teachers and uh, some students. Um, I wanted to make sure that I was in this story reflecting the experiences of some people who are coming of age, right. as well as the uh, workers themselves who had lost, uh, lost the jobs they thought they'd have for a lifetime, a working lifetime. And one of the notable things that's happened in the schools is that the proportion of students whose families are poor enough that they qualify for federally subsidized breakfasts and lunches has just shot up remarkably. Um, the income levels of these students is just way down. Mm-hmm. Um, even in schools that were always the more affluent ones now have some students who are much poorer. Um, one of the people whose stories I follow in this book is a social studies teacher who became uh, mindful uh, as the recession was uh, kind of going along that she was seeing students who used to be from middle-class families um, who were now poor. And on her own, she started something called the Parker Closet. It's named for Parker High School, and Parker High School is named for Parker Pen Company, which also had a long history in Janesville that ended around this time. And uh, she began with the help of some other teachers, uh, basically collecting donated food, used jeans, school supplies, and has a little locked closet uh, in the school itself 
um, that's kind of a food pantry and a clothes pantry and has prom dresses in the spring that she's collected uh, donated from donations uh, for girls who otherwise couldn't afford to, afford to go to the school prom in the springtime. So that's the kind of homegrown effort that some people have put into trying to ease the economic plight of people in town. Well, and it is a great story about the the fact that, that at least in this case, people rallied around uh, the fact that, that that this was a loss, and it was a, a significant loss. And, and to a degree, playing off something you said before, uh, people are very protective of their of their towns. They they don't want to see them decline, uh, you know, if they have a way to be able to prevent it. So y- you almost get it feels like a, a greater sense of community from going through something like this. So I, I think that there is a strong sense of community in Janesville. At the same time, let me make another point, which is that as time went on, the kind of political polarization that the United States has seen broadly also settled into Janesville, yeah. Uh, so that there were people who were very sensitive to the hurt that their neighbors were undergoing, and there were other people who were more affluent, because not everybody was hurt by the bad economy, who in a way weren't even aware of some of the troubles that their neighbors were experiencing. So even a small city such as Janesville, um, its population is a little over 60,000, so it's a city but a small one. Yeah. Even a place like that has classified, and it became more pronounced over the five years of the story that I tell in this book. We're talking with uh, Amy Goldstein of The Washington Post. Her book is Janesville, an American story. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter, and we'll bring it up on the show that way, at bizradio111, B-I-Z, Radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, What's been the reaction that you have received to telling this story? And more specifically, have you received reaction from Speaker Ryan about this book? Well, I have been just blown away by the reaction from the community. You know, it's a bit of an audacious act for me as somebody who lives and works in Washington to show up in this town that's not my community and spend years trying to get to know people there and understand what they've been going through and then write about it in a very public way. And I frankly wasn't certain how people would react. But I have found that the response has been just overwhelmingly positive. I mean, I don't know that everybody loves what I wrote, but I haven't heard from people who didn't. And I have been back in Janesville twice to give talks or in the second time have a kind of community discussion about themes from the book. And people have been very, very interested and supportive of what I've written. And I can't explain it, you know, person by person, but I've heard some people tell me that they feel as if, what I've done has honored their community and uh, kind of given um, voice to their experiences. And I wasn't necessarily expecting that kind of affirmative response. Well, there's, there's also the part of this playing off of what you just said is that for you coming from Washington, going into a, a community like this, uh, they look at you as an outsider and you have to build up a level of trust, which seemingly you now have. But it probably took you quite a period of time to be able to earn that. Well, that's true of any reporting, but it's particularly true uh, when you're spending, in this case, uh, five or six years um, working on uh, something like this. Um, You know, I got to know a few people in town, and they introduced me to other people in town, and it was just a broad ripple effect of people I was getting to know. 
And uh, I did try to earn people's trust. I tried to listen carefully to their experiences and not distort what they were telling me and Mm -hmm. be respectful of the boundaries of what people were comfortable with my saying about their experiences and not comfortable and uh, hopefully represent their sometimes very hard experiences faithfully. So what is the path in your mind of Janesville now? And and obviously we mentioned before about the redevelopment of, of the old plant, of the old GM plant right now. What do you think the path of Janesville is going to be in the years to come? Well, I think it's always very hard to predict the future, even after the future, the post-GM future has been playing out now for several years. Where things stand now is that the unemployment rate, which had shot up to above 13 percent in early 2009, uh, a few months after all these General Motors jobs had vanished, uh, that unemployment rate is now down to about 4 percent. So it mirrors the uh, decline in unemployment uh, throughout the country. On the other hand, if you look at uh, manufacturing jobs, they really have not come back. And if you look at wages, um, it's, uh, w- the pattern is much, much lower than the $28 an hour wages that General Motors was paying most of its uh, workers at the end. Well, what is so it, it also... On how you measure things. And in yeah. terms of what's going to happen into the future... Um, You know, some jobs have come back, but again, they're not paying anything like these manufacturing jobs used to pay. And it's just unknowable right now, even with the plant just having been sold in the last couple of weeks, what that property is going to become. Well, what about the issue of retraining? Because obviously GM was not going to be doing it. People had to go back to school or, you know, go get, uh, you know, a degree, a certificate of some kind uh, because they weren't going to be working most likely in the auto industry. That's right. I was very, very interested in the question of retraining. I mean, it seemed to me that if I was looking at a community that had lost thousands and thousands of jobs, the next thing to look at was what do we as a government, what does a, you know, we as a country and what does the federal government espouse in terms of what people should do about this? And uh, if you think about the economic policies that Democrats and Republicans advocate, there isn't much overlap on those two lists except for job retraining. It's something that's very widely embraced by people with all kinds of ideologies. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I picked Janesville, among others, is that it has a technical college that was doing a huge amount of job retraining. A few thousand uh, former factory workers suddenly became students in a couple of years after these jobs went away. So I got to know a lot of people both at the college, people working at the college, people who were going to school, and I also, with the help of a couple of labor economists, did a statistical analysis as part of this research mm-hmm. looking at what happened to people who had lost work in this part of southern Wisconsin and then did or did not go back to school during this period of time. And uh, it turned out, very surprisingly, that the people who went back to school uh, had by a few years afterwards, say 2011, 2012, so three or four years after these jobs went away, they had a less likelihood of having uh, full-time work. And if they had work again, they were making less than people who had not retrained. So that's a pretty stark finding. Now, I don't think it's an indictment of job retraining all over the place, but I think it is a cautionary story that if you're trying to do really, uh, you know, intensive retraining, which this college was, they were working really hard at it, if you're trying to do good retraining in a community that hasn't yet generated new jobs, people aren't necessarily going to prosper on the far end. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit 
knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.